0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.
1: This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, coming to you on demand, in isolation, in Buffalo, New York. It's April 3rd, 2020, in the much overdue time of coronavirus. Still in the time of exponential growth here in the United States. Although there were fewer deaths yesterday than the day before, which is a rare thing in the last few weeks here. I am washing my hands. I am still going to work at an undisclosed location three days a week, but I've been studying the effects, the potential effects of coronavirus on businesses like World Wrestling Entertainment and All Elite Wrestling. We don't know when New Japan Pro Wrestling is going to run again. All Japan Pro Wrestling has canceled the Champion Carnival. I think in fact they're going to have a tough time getting to Madison Square Garden at this rate. Maybe more on that later, but today we'll talk about what the effects will be on the businesses of WWE and AEW of COVID-19, an update on WWE's pay-per-view rights business dealings. We'll answer the age-old question. I I know WWE house show attendance sucks, but, but doesn't the venue merchandise make up for it? We'll answer that question today. And since today is April 3rd, we are now in Q2, which means Q1 has ended. Q1 from January 1st to March 31st, and we'll go over the television viewership in those three months. I've got more NXT and AEW quarter-hour information for viewership. What were the ten most overperforming fifteen-minute segments for either program? We'll go through that. The XFL lawsuit has been dismissed. WWE's India TV deal has finally been finalized. And big match, John John Cena, the last economic difference maker in U.S. pro wrestling history. Well, he's got some thoughts on just what modern wrestling is today and what's going on with star power and things of that nature. And I might have some thoughts about his thoughts. All that and more. But first, Libertarian Kane, otherwise known as the mayor of Knox County in Tennessee, otherwise known as Isaac Yankum DDS, otherwise known as Fake Diesel, otherwise known As a Christmas creature, Glenn Jacobs, Unabom, Bruiser Mastino, Angus King, and a guy who does surprisingly well in Google shopping searches, and perhaps the only man in the United States of America who quite understands Abraham Lincoln. When Tennessee Governor Bill Lee made an executive order ordering Tennesseans to stay home, although Mayor Cain said, he would comply, he took to Facebook Live and had these thoughts
3: about the executive order. I applaud the governor for following through with his convictions and fulfilling his duty to protect the people of Tennessee according to his best judgment. However, I cannot applaud any government monitoring the movements of its people and mandating virtually everything we are allowed to do. I understand that COVID-19 is a very serious issue and this is a crisis, but we also face an economic crisis with millions of people out of work and no way to earn a living, many of them due to mandated government shutdowns. We also have a looming mental health crisis as individuals struggle with depression and feelings of hopelessness and isolation exacerbated by job loss. Many of them have already taken their own lives. We have a political crisis, as our state and nation must determine a way to walk back from the damage currently being done to our system of free government. During another crisis, Abraham Lincoln said, government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from this earth. Knox County will, of course, comply with this executive order. However, with our response to COVID-19, I fear that way that we may be testing the very limits of President Lincoln's notion.
2: As one Twitter commenter said when I shared this story, it's a well-known fact that Kane's brother is an undertaker, and if people die, it helps the family business. So, politics as usual in Knox County. But anyway, I have a prediction. I realized earlier, I made it sound like... All Japan Pro Wrestling was going to Madison Square Garden. I met New Japan, obviously. I think it's going to be a long time before we get things to go back to normal, as everyone says. I'm going to predict here that this New Japan show that is scheduled for August 22nd in Madison Square Garden in New York City, Wrestle Dynasty, I don't think that's going to end up happening. That's my prediction. I think what we're going to see if we're going back to work by August I think what we're likely to see is a slow rollout of uh, of the easing of restrictions on social distancing. I think it's likely that we'll see medical experts and government officials say, okay, maybe we can have small gatherings now. And if that goes okay, if that doesn't lead to a second wave of cases, okay, maybe we can ease it up to medium. Maybe a hundred people can can gather together now. Maybe a few hundred. And I think the last thing to get approval is going to be these huge sporting events that contain 10,000 people or if it's at a stadium, 80,000 people. And there could be intervals of, of weeks or months between those easing of restrictions. Which brings to mind the debate over whether or not WWE should have done WrestleMania this coming weekend or if they should have waited and postponed it and made it the first WWE event when things go back to normal. I don't know, I think there's a lot of uncertainty And I think in in the case of the prospect of postponing WrestleMania, you may end up in a situation where WWE is allowed to put a few thousand people in a venue, but maybe not 60 or 70 or 80,000 people in a venue. In the case of what was planned for Raymond James Stadium in Tampa Bay for WrestleMania. In other words, I think it's possible that the first kind of event that WWE is allowed to do again may not be possible to do at a stadium-like venue. In the wider world, I think it's quite possible that we don't see any Major League Baseball games this season. It's quite possible that we don't see any NFL games uh, this season or this coming season. I think it's possible that you'll see universities really think about whether or not they're going to have large lecture halls full of students you know, in the hundreds in the upcoming fall semester. Meanwhile, people may be going back to their normal work centers in some cases and being near some other people to some degree. But I think the return to normal is going to be a very gradual return to normal. I think we kind of all had it in mind a few weeks ago that, you know, this would be a temporary thing. We we're going to isolate in our homes for a few weeks and then, boom, we'll be, we'll be back to work. We'll be back on shows. We'll be doing everything just as normal like it was before. I don't think so. I think, unfortunately, this is going to be a slow process. And maybe, just maybe, WB and AEW won't be able to run any more normal live events for the rest of 2020. And since you're listening to WrestleNomics Radio, you're probably an extremely intelligent person who's always trying to look ahead and always trying to understand what the future is going to be like. What are the trends that lie ahead? You're probably asking yourself, what are the economic effects? What's the financial picture going to look like for companies like WWE and AEW if they can't run any more live events in 2020? Well, luckily for you, I've spent the last week looking over that question. And I talked about it a little bit last week. I was in the process of, of uh, working out a model, a COVID-19 model, especially for WWE because we know WWE's finances, since they are, of course, a publicly traded company. And I found that WWE will, in the event that they run no more normal live events for the rest of the year, their financial results actually won't be drastically different. I wrote a post on WrestleMonix.com that you can read at WrestleNomics.com, where I wrote that W would still report record-setting profits in 2020 if they ran no more live events for the rest of the year. They would still bring in more than $900 million in revenue. The operating income that I estimated is $121 million. And actually, after thinking it over further, I think that's low because my model forgot to account for how much cheaper it'll be for WWE to run television programming, when well, they don't have to run it as a full wrestling card broadcast live from a sporting venue. Because of course when you run a typical Raw or Smackdown broadcast, you have to pay for the venue, you have to pay for the production, you have to pay for the talent, you have to get it broadcast live. So I think upon further reflection, W could be even more profitable in 2020 than they might have been otherwise in a normal year With normal live events. Because the key here is that. As listeners may know. WWE makes a ton of money. From TV rights. 2020 is the first full year. Of their new set of deals with Fox. And NBC Universal. For Raw and Smackdown. Where WWE was granted big increases. And of all the revenue streams that WWE has. Many of them are at risk. To various degrees. But the revenue stream that I think is. The least at risk here. Are their TV rights, what they call core content rights fees, which are the TV rights that they get for the broadcasts around the world for Raw and SmackDown. So this is the big point. Remember this one. As long as WWE, AEW for that matter, continue to deliver content in their current time slots, I strongly believe that those wrestling companies will continue to get their expected payments from their broadcasters. As long as they continue to deliver new content. That doesn't mean they have to deliver live programming from a sporting venue. That doesn't mean that they need to deliver matches that no one's ever seen before. As long as they're not basically airing reruns of old episodes, they'll get their money. They can re-air pay-per-view matches that have happened in the past. They can do new best-of shows. They could do video and interview packages. They'll get their money. The viewership may be okay, The viewership may be bad. They'll get their money. And what's not going to happen is neither WWE, Ross Macdon, NXT, or AEW Dynamite are going to go on hiatus until they can run normal events again. That's not going to happen. Those programs are going to stay on the air and try to sustain whatever habitual viewing they can in their time slots. And they're going to continue to sell ad slots for their broadcasters. WWE and AEW are going to get their money. WWE is going to be profitable. Probably just as profitable as they would have been close to it. In the year, if there was no coronavirus, AEW will probably be more challenged because they'll not be able to sell any tickets. WWE, I think it's more of a wash. WrestleMania week notwithstanding, which is a very lucrative week for them. Merchandise, I think, is a big question for both companies. WWE, Saudi Arabia... Is a big question if they can do another event and get another $50 million before the end of the year. But as I mentioned, on the other hand, it's much cheaper to produce TV when it's not a live sports venue broadcast. And I'm sure Major League Wrestling TV shows will go back to normal when they're able to go back to normal. And we'll see Raw and SmackDown and AEW and maybe NXT eventually one day uh, back at sporting venues around the country. But for now, financially, I think they'll do all right. I have no frame of reference for how much money uh, AEW needs to generate to uh, break even on a year like 2020. According to Dave Meltz of the Wrestling Observer, their TV deal with Warner Media, the parent company of TNT, that deal was upgraded in January, extended to 2023, with an option for 2024, with an average annual value of $45 million. So I think they'll still get... That money will obviously be affected in terms of ticket sales. I think merchandise is in question going forward, but who knows? Meltzer said that uh, with the extension of the TV deal and the upgrade in TV rights of $45 million average annual value, that they would become sustainable already for 2020. Maybe they still would be sustainable in 2020 even without live events, but I can't say for certain. WWE, on the other hand, has sold library content just recently. And to be fair, I don't know if if sold is the right verb. Who knows? But WWE clearly has come to some agreement with ESPN for the replays of three WrestleMania events on ESPN that aired on Sunday nights. And Fox Sports made an agreement with WWE for 22 hours of WWE's library footage, which started with the Royal Rumble, of this year being replayed on Tuesday night. Now, whether or not ESPN or Fox Sports were paying WWE any money, any rights for the, for those uh, replays, I don't know. But there's clearly some value there for WWE, if, if only marketing value to appear on those networks. But that's an opportunity that WWE gets because of the COVID-19 crisis, because of the lack of live sports that are out there. And ESPN and Fox Sports are desperate to find something that is... Sports like, And here we come across another great example of why I believe, as one of the core tenets of my wrestling philosophy, that, that wrestling overlaps a space between sports and scripted entertainment. So there's more value in replays of old wrestling events than there is in replays of old sports games. Just like there's value in the replays of movies and TV shows. Although the replays of wrestling is not as valuable as the replays of movies and TV shows, but it's somewhere in the middle. It's overlapping that space between sports and scripted entertainment. And I think that overlap is relevant in other cases when it comes to the decline in viewership. We see the the decline in viewership for wrestling declines more quickly than most traditional sports, but not as quickly as traditional scripted entertainment. And think about DVR viewing. Wrestling is not as DVR-proof as most live sports, but it's more DVR-proof than traditional scripted entertainment. Wrestling overlaps that space in between live sports and scripted entertainment, which it is literally a hybrid of. It is a, I don't like the word scripted, but it is a predetermined live sports-like
1: thing. Hello, everybody. And speaking of numbers, on average, if you were to guess, how many days do you think people in the U.S. wait to see a doctor with our healthcare system? What would you say? Americans have to wait about 29 days to see a doctor in major U.S. cities. That's why I'm supporting Medicare for all. I mean, if, I'm sorry. If you're dealing with a condition like erectile dysfunction, you want treatment ASAP. That's why our friends at Roman, not Roman Reigns, but Roman, have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor in your state, all from the comfort of your home. Roman makes it convenient to get the treatment that you need on your schedule. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online visit, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. And if the doctor decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship your medication to you free with two-day shipping. You can also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or questions. Or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments, and you can cancel any time. So if you're struggling with ED, go to Roman.com slash VOW for a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash VOW for a free online visit and free two-day shipping.
2: But anyway, related to uh, Fox Sports showing W Library content, also announced, when that was announced, is that Fox's streaming platforms, like Fox Now, and I think the Fox, whatever their app is, the Fox Go Sports app, will be offering WrestleMania, which is, if you haven't heard, too big for one night. And yes, that is a trademarked phrase. You can find the filing on the U.S. Patent Office's database. WrestleMania, too big for one night, will be available on Fox streaming platforms for $60. WrestleMania will also be available on Fight TV for sixty dollars, or I think you can get either night for thirty-five dollars. And of course, this uh, bit of news has got some astute wrestling minds screaming from the rooftops. Did you know you can still get WrestleMania both nights as part of a nine ninety-nine subscription on the WWE Network? So I don't know. I don't know why. I can only speculate what there is to gain for WB or these streaming platforms in trying to sell a pay-per-view product that is undercut by multiples on WB's direct-to-consumer streaming platform. Of course, pay-per-views have been available uh, through cable and satellite providers throughout the history of the WB network for $60 or in somewhere in that range. I guess it can't hurt to sell the pay-per-view for, for $60. There probably isn't a great deal of expense involved with making the offering. I would speculate that it has something to do with assessing the value or the viability of WrestleMania as an exclusive standalone paper event at some time in the future, possibly next year. Maybe there's some sort of data to be gained, some sort of lesson to be learned from selling WrestleMania on Fox and fight platforms. And then from there, in other news. I was asked the question uh, earlier this week by follower Michael. Whether the alleged unprofitable house show business would be profitable if we included the related venue merchandise business. Of course, at every WWE event, merchandise is sold. Not just tickets, but merchandise is sold. This is also a point that's been raised in the past when... Uh, There's been discussion about running fewer live events. In particular, running fewer house shows. Which are a liability on the bottom line. Cause wear and tear on the bodies of talent. And keeps talent on the road and away from their homes and their families. Many, many days out of the year. One defense has been, well, you got to consider. When WWE runs those house shows, even if they're not profitable. They're making a lot of money when they sell that merch. And uh, to be generous to the argument, I think there is a value to a marketing value in running a WWE event in a town on a night that, as WB might say, puts smiles on people's faces and creates memories that last a lifetime. But seriously, I think there is a value in that. And I will not try to estimate monetarily the value of that. But I will estimate the value of venue merchandise sales on house shows in 2019 right now. So here we go. Here's the on-air math. First of all, we've got to understand that what we're ultimately trying to figure out here is some sort of profit metric. So we're not just going to be satisfied with revenue. The issue is profitability. The question is whether or not house shows are profitable if you counted the profits related to Venue Merch. So here's what we're going to do. WWE does break out its venue merch segment. We know how much venue merch revenue W brings in for each quarter in just about every year it's been public. We don't know, though, the profit margin in the last couple years. But we do know the profit margin that is the OEBDA margin in the years of 2011 through 2017. WWE has changed its reporting method in the time between. But from 11 to 17, we knew what the OEBDA margin was. Think of it as a profit margin. Between those years, the OEBDA margin on venue merch was between 36% and 40%. Fairly consistent. So to be generous to the idea that Venny merch may make ends meet, let's go with 40%. In 2019, we know that Venny merch generated $18.6 million for WWE. 40% of that is $7.4 million. Number of events for that year, 310. That's main roster shows. We've got Raw and SmackDown every week. You have got pay-per-views every month. That's about 116 TV shows. That leaves us with a difference of 194 house shows. Now, important nugget of information ousted former co-president George Barrios last year, while trying to apologize for declining key metrics, gave us some averages around media events. Those are TV tapings and pay-per-views. Implicit in those averages, in other words, you can do the algebra to figure out what the average attendances are on house shows. The implied house show average for 2018 for WWE was 3,400. Now, total attendance in 2019 was down about 2% from 2018. Let's apply that to the average house show attendance. So we get an estimated average house show attendance for 2019 of 3,300. We multiply 3,300 across 194 house shows. We get a total house show attendance for 2019 of 640,000. Now, we take that number and divide it over the total attendance for the year, main roster, of 1.548 million and that means 41 percent of the ticket sales for the year are from house shows now what good is that that tells us about house show ticket sales but what does that mean about venue merch ah i'm glad you asked attendance is actually a strong predictor of venue merchandise sales if you look at venue merchandise sales say over the last 13 years adjust it for inflation and run alongside the total attendance for each year put that through a correlation coefficient and what you get is a 0.72 Correlation, a fairly strong relationship. And while W popularity has declined in a number of areas over the last few years, venue merch sales per capita has been very consistent. It's $10 or $11 every single year. So, since we estimated that house show ticket sales make up about 41% of total ticket sales, we can figure that venue merch sales, about 41% of those sales are probably from house shows. But I'm being generous. The W attendance we're talking about is main roster attendance. The venue merchandise we're talking about is venue merchandise across all of W's brands, including NXT. Certainly, W is selling some merchandise at NXT events. There's probably a way to estimate how much, but we're not going to deal with that right now. We're going to be generous to the idea that venue merch is making up for the losses at house shows. So to go back, the estimated venue merch, OEBDA, profit for 2019 is $7.4 million. 41% of that, that is our theoretical house show share, comes to... 3.1 million dollars in venue merchandise profits related to house shows again because we're not considering nxt it's a there's a good chance that that number is actually a bit lower but let's go with that number for now 3.1 million dollars does that make up for the amount of money that w loses on house shows in a given year let's see w's live events division was unprofitable in three out of four quarters in 2019 it was profitable in the wrestlemania quarter with an operating income of 12.4 million dollars so it's possible that there were house shows in that quarter that were unprofitable, but it's really hard to know how much negative value house shows were contributing to operating income in that division in that quarter. But what we do know is the other three quarters were negative on operating income, negative 200,000, negative 3.5 million, negative 1 million. Comes to a total of $4.7 million. Dollars. Now, of course, it is possible that some of the losses from the running of TV shows, it's possible, but I think that's less likely because I think the way that WWE does its accounting is that they pay for talent costs for TV and pay-per-view events out of the media division, not the live events division. And that on house shows, the live events division pays for the talent costs. Possibly there's other costs involved as well that go to media instead of live events in the case of TV and pay-per-view. So I think the losses that we see in the live events division are largely, if not completely, due to house shows. So again, those three negative quarters come to a negative $4.7 $4.7 million, which does not quite get covered, by $3.1 million in house show, venue merch, OIDA. Aren't you glad you know that now? I hope you're playing that at 2XP, because that's seven minutes of your life you'll never get back. Okay. Anyway. And then from there. Viewership for Raw and SmackDown, NXT, AEW Dynamite. Thanks to showbuzzdaily.com. In Q1, the time between January 1st and March 31st. Raw, which I really think of as the control group when it comes to WWE main roster viewership patterns. Raw saw another quarter of double-digit declines from the same Q1. Excuse me, the same quarter last year. 2.6 million viewers, 2.2 million viewers this year. SmackDown, of course, with the benefit of being on Fox instead of USA Network last year. 2.5 million viewers, 2.1 million viewers the year before. So a 17% increase. And we've got to remember when we go over these numbers, and the thing is, this is going to put such a hole in, uh, in the study of trends going forward, because we're always going to have to look back on this era when it comes to looking at all sorts of metrics, whether it's attendance, revenue, maybe merch sales, television viewership, And we're going to have to say, you know, you got to remember that period that we're making that comparison against. That was the coronavirus period. So stay safe and wash your hands and stay home so we can pull our hair out over that for years to come. Average viewership in Q1 for NXT was 701,000. Trailing AEW Dynamite with an average of 883,000. Those averages are both down from the averages of Q4 with 785 for NXT and 901,000 for AEW. But that's just total viewership. And you're probably thinking, being an astute listener of WrestleNomics Radio, you know, total viewership is interesting. But what really matters, what really matters is the key demographic. That's the demographic that advertisers really care about. You know, really young people, kids, they don't have any money. And old people, they're already set in their ways. They care about people between the ages of 18 and 49. That's the audience that Don Draper cares about. So in the case of WRAW, I told you total viewership was down double digits, 16%. The key demo, which doesn't include old people or kids, but importantly, it doesn't include old people, key demo down 21% from the Q1 of the prior year. A difference of 0.71 this quarter to 0.91 the quarter, the Q1 of last year. SmackDown, with the benefit, again, of being on Fox instead of USA in the Q1 of the prior year, up by just 2%. And for SmackDown, the total audience was up 17%, which is remarkable, isn't it? Some kids in there, maybe we don't get a lot of additional demographic information for smackdown now because it's on network tv and showbuzz daily gives a more limited view of demographics for network programs but we do know that raw still performs really strongly in the p50 plus demographic and i would expect smackdown is doing something similar as it did when it was on the usa network that remarkable and really under talked about phenomenon where and I know different people of different age groups have a a vastly different ways that they consume media but it really is remarkable when you look out at an audience in an event and you see a lot of young adults you don't see many people who are over the age of 50 but that is their strongest demographic group for television viewership in the Wednesday night competition people don't want you to call it a war you get DMs if you call it the Wednesday night wars NXT did a 0.21 in the demo, trailing AEW with a 0.34 in the demo. And both of those down just slightly from Q4, when NXT did 0.25 and Dynamite did 0.39. Quick interesting note, if you break this down to months, and you look at the competition between AEW and NXT, in both total audience and the key demo, AEW beats NXT in every month, except for the total audience... ...of NXT was higher than the average total audience for AEW in the month of December. Remember that bad month of uh, AEW Dynamite in December? And I bet... We're not going to get into this right now... ...but I bet if you did a study of something like cage match ratings for each of these weekly programs... ...I bet that you would find the lowest ratings for AEW Dynamite in the month of December 2019... Something to uh, look at later. In other words, by God, critical acclaim in this one instance, at least, I bet, I hypothesize, uh, meant something in terms of economics or in terms of television viewership. Anyway, AEW Dynamite and NXT, by the way, AEW seems to have a lot of stuff in the can ready to air. According to Wrestling Inc., they had enough in the can to air through the middle of May in other Wednesday night news. Uh, Thanks to a a very helpful guy out there who passes along viewership information collected from the Wrestling Observer newsletter. We have quarterly viewership information for P2 Plus and the key demo put into a spreadsheet. And I've processed the numbers. We have even got some labels to try to get some idea of what happened in, in each of these quarters that we've got information for. So we got the info from January 1st to March 18th for NXT and Dynamite. And I'm going to tell you what the most overperforming segments were. I don't want to play the dubstep again and get too in the weeds here. But basically, I, I, I did some math to... That basically asked the question, If this 15 minutes of the program were subtracted out of the pattern, what would you expect this quarter hour to do in terms of viewership? So what I'm trying to do there is account for the bias uh, of certain segments. You know, the opening segment is always the strongest uh, segment of, of just about any wrestling program. The final segment tends to do well. the The first segment of the second hour tends to do well. So I'm trying to account for that bias. And I'm trying to account for the bias of certain programs that overall did really well, right? So let's go through, let's say the top five for each program. Which segments... Most overperformed what you would expect them to do based on the performance of the program overall and based on the usual performance of their segment. I'm using segment interchangeably with quarter hour here, by the way. So, NXT, the fifth most overperforming segment for NXT during the period, was a match in February between Johnny Gargano and Cameron Grimes. Number four, a segment involving Charlotte Flair, Bianca Belair. And Rhea Ripley from February. Number three, the first segment of the Women's Battle Royal in January, January 15th. Number two and number one for NXT both come from their New Year's Day show, which was their award show, which was also kind of a best of show, right? So, number two contained the end of a four way ladder match from the NXT TakeOver in New York. And that segment also contained the Tag Team of the Year award presentation. Number one most overperforming segment for NXT in January, February and about the first half of March is the opening segment from the same episode, which was the previous segment to the one that I just mentioned that had the beginning of the four-way ladder match. So that's NXT. So for AEW Dynamite, the number five most overperforming segment, a segment where the inner circle beats down Jon Moxley in the beginning of a Jericho and Sammy Guevara versus Darby Allen match, that from March fourth. Also from March fourth, the following segment, which had the conclusion of that match and another beatdown on John Moxley. Number three from the following week, the main event segment, with Jericho and Guevara versus Adam Page and Dustin Rhodes. Number two from February nineteenth, the beginning of a match between John Moxley and Jeff Cobb. And then number one, from February twenty sixth, the conclusion of the Ironman match between Kenny Omega and Pac. Pac, not Pac. It also contained Pac's post-match interview. And now for a WrestleNomics legal update. We've talked here on WrestleNomics Radio about a lawsuit between the Oklahoma Firefighters Retirement and Pension System OK Fire sometimes for short between that organization and WWE so okay fire is a shareholder uh, I once remarked on this podcast I think that that they were a small shareholder as it turns out it looks like what they did was they sold the vast majority of their stock they were uh, holding quite a bit of stock previously and in fact it, it looks like in the, uh, the the timing that they must have sold the stock at the, uh, compared to when they bought it they probably sold it at quite a profit Uh, Which is a point that Jerry McDivitt raises in his defense of WWE. The retirement fund uh, alleging, basically alleging that there were a number of conflicts of interest between WWE and Vince McMahon's XFL. Alleging that the XFL intellectual property was really worth $50 million. They've got a slide from a business pitch from the Ebersol family that says that they were thinking about maybe offering $50 million for the XFL IP. Charlie Ebersol provides a signed affidavit saying no such offer or any offer was ever made for the XFL IP when they met with Vince McMahon. The Ebersoles, of course, ended up running the AAF, the failed football league that came before the XFL last year. But the retirement system also alleged that there were conflicts of interest because WWE and the XFL were using the same lawyers. Lawyers from the law firm k l Gates, home of Jerry McDivitt. longtime WWE defender, Jerry McDivitt. So the plaintiff alleging conflicts of interest there. And WWE employees, we know from SEC filings, that WWE employees are su- uh, providing support services to Alpha Entertainment, the parent company of uh, yeah, the XFL. WB employees are doing some sort of work related to the XFL, and the uh, Alpha Entertainment is paying WB for those services, but the uh, the plaintiff alleges, you know, we don't know if, if it's being paid for at a fair market value. You know, we don't know what the formula is that they use to calculate the rate. We don't know if Vince McMahon is just giving himself a great deal in terms of that, the support services, and in terms of the IP, which they only paid. $1 $1 million for, again, SEC filings show that as well. The uh, retirement system demands access to records and books so that they can investigate whether or not there are, in fact, conflicts of interest. So that's a brief summary of the background. But we learn that on March 10th, there's a filing in the state of Delaware where this legal action is taking place. WB is a Delaware company. Yes, even though it is headquartered in, in Connecticut. It's a Delaware company. On March 10th, we get this headline. Plaintiff's Notice of Voluntary Dismissal. Pursuant to Court of Chancery Rule 41A1, Plaintiff, Oklahoma Firefighters Pension and Retirement System, hereby files this notice of voluntary dismissal, dismissing the above caption case with prejudice, each side to bear its own costs and expenses. So that's really all we know. We don't know if there's a settlement. We don't know if WWE gave the retirement system some money on the side or something to cause them to settle. But that's the latest we know. The XFL lawsuit, as it is so called, has been voluntarily dismissed by the plaintiff. And then from there, on Tuesday morning, WWE brought a press release announcing that it had finally, officially finalized its deal with its India broadcast partner, Sony. A new five-year deal to air Raw, SmackDown, NXT, and pay-per-views in India. The WWE Network, which previously had only been offered in India through the usual WWE Network platform at the usual price point, 9 dollars US dollars, will now be offered through the sony streaming platform sony live i think you would say this but it's sony liv the liv in all caps i don't know if that's sony live sony live so it sounds like that is a more uh, appropriate price point sony live has a price point of 499 indian rupees which is equivalent to about six dollars and 62 cents usd that's a per year subscription not a per month subscription so a lot of issues that were raised in the past was that the 999 USD price point for India was not appropriate for that market which has a much lower income level than say the US market. So this news comes out much later than we originally projected long ago. This deal was supposed to be done and finalized in the middle of 2019, George Barrios once told us. The deal expired with no official deal announced. The deal expired on December 31st, but W content continued to air on Sony platforms. Uh, the press release doesn't give us any, uh, any information about the terms beyond the five-year deal. And of course, this is not completely new news. We knew that Sports Business, which is a very expensive paywall um, website that gives a lot of information, intelligence, about uh, sports media business deals. They had reported earlier that a deal was done with a 1.8x increase over the previous deal and saying that that would be an upgrade from an average annual value of $28 million per year to $50 million average annual value. So again, a 1.8x increase. And with this deal, if India had not already been, India becomes WWE's number two television market surpassing the United Kingdom. Sorry, UK fans. Uh, W's new deal, moving from Sky Sports to BT Sport in the UK. We don't know a lot of information about it, but it, it looks like it was possibly a downgrade, maybe a lateral movement in terms of average annual value. I think the Sky Sports deal previously was somewhere in the range of like $33 million per year. Uh, Nowhere near the average annual value of $50 million, which is, the again, the value of the new India deal. So in other news, that notwithstanding, John Cena appeared on WWE's podcast after the bell with Corey Graves. And why why was that relevant to WrestleNomics? Because what we talk about here sometimes is sometimes we talk about star power, and I think the importance of star power to WWE and to the wrestling business in general, but particularly to WWE because it's a publicly traded company, is not something that's well understood by WWE's investors and analysts. And John Cena is who we often reference as the last wrestler, last talent for WWE who is truly an economic difference maker. And we see that evidenced in a number of ways when it comes to studies that I've done on house show attendance, comparing house show attendance of John Cena shows versus house show attendance of shows at the same time period that did not have John Cena on them. The John Cena shows do about 25% better in the years between, I believe it was 2011 and 2015. Is the the period that I did the study for. And we often see Increases in viewership when John Cena returns to television. And John Cena has been phased out as a top star, as a regular for WWE. I think his days as a regular star are done. That's pretty much obvious. And WWE sure could use another star who's as much of a difference maker as Cena was. And still is when he's still around. So anyway, here's the man himself. Sort of talking about that subject of star power and who's a top star. Was it take to be a top star? How could there be? Can there be another top star for WWE? Fifteen years down the road, we can say this is the so-and-so era. Uh, there was the attitude era, the ruthless aggression, real yep. guy era.
4: Uh, in your opinion, watching from outside the box, what does this current landscape need to sort of define itself? It, it needs what I what I'm not sure it can produce, and that's a that's like a, just a state of where everything is now, I, which is weird because it kind of always corrects itself. So we're in a, a day and age where I, it needs a front man or, or woman. And that's what will be able to define what the era is because it, t- it takes on those personality traits of its top star. And I, like I've said it before, I don't know if all things considered, the crowd is so mixed that if the company puts its faith behind an individual, the knee-jerk reaction of the audience, even if they liked the guy last week, is to say, f*** you, you're not going to tell me who I like. Right. So the audience is also tipping the scales of this not being able to happen. Like, there's universal popularity will never happen because someone will see it and get onto it and be like, he seems to be getting popular. Let's stop this right now. Or she seems to be getting popular. Let's change this right now. And I've seen it happen with guys who are really... Like, darlings of that underground crew make it, and then as soon as they make it, the rug's pulled out from under. It almost seems to become the norm these days. I mean, you look like a Seth Rollins. Seth Rollins was the indie darling. He, yeah. He, against all odds, made it to the top of the card, makes, wins the title, and all of a sudden everyone kind of... Because now we don't want him anymore. That's not our guy. I mean, you you experienced it firsthand. You kind of were the blueprint for it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, it's difficult because... You can't it's like like I said, it's like a super friends because the audience is so segmented, some people will embrace that underground dude, some people will embrace the top person, some people will embrace the mid-cards, some people will embrace the cruiserweights. Uh and then there's the split between like I like SmackDown, I like Raw, I like NXT. Um it's just really difficult to get one definable figure to stand at the front and be like, Okay, let's let's go. I mean there are I don't know. So I don't know. Like that's where the business is. And usually if it pushes too far in one way, the pendulum finds a way to come back. But I really don't know because the program is so socially and your social emotions are not what they are in the arena. I, I know that firsthand, dude.
2: So times in the past, I've talked about and thought about what we might call the vocal minority argument espoused by Vince McMahon and others, that there is a loud and relatively small, a minority of the audience that makes noise, but doesn't represent the wider mainstream, what some might in business call the total available market. This, of course, the the vocal minority is, of course, the section of the audience that does, that participates in mischief, like booing John Cena, booing Roman Reigns. When these guys really are, or at least would be, The money makers. But here we have John Cena making a slightly modified version of that argument. Maybe an advance of that argument. That not just that the vocal minority makes a noise that is not representative of an important reality. Not just that the vocal minority may confuse you about who could be a star. Oh no, John Cena goes further. He says that the audience now has morphed into a permanent impediment that will, by its very nature, prevent the development of another top star, economic difference maker, era-defining star. In other words, the audience is such that there, there can't be a Hulk Hogan, a Steve Austin, a Rock, not even a John Cena, who defines an era and positively drives business far more than just about any other. There cannot be such a top star for this audience. It is impossible. Anyone who the company seems to get behind will be turned on. I think there's a problem, though, that comes prior to any of that. The, the symptoms, the pendulum-like activity... Cena describes are the symptoms of a broken relationship throughout the history of wrestling particularly after the emergence of the internet particularly after the emergence of the smartphone of social media the audience has become increasingly aware of what wrestling is increasingly aware of the creative behind it whether they are accurate in their perceptions or not they're conscious of the decisions that go into the story and who gets the chance to be a star and what came first was that Vince McMahon dominated his industry and shortly thereafter his taste and the audience's taste parted ways and in the subsequent years the differences in Vince's taste and his audience's taste and the gradually increasing awareness of the audience that that's what's going on has been the source of increasing tension between the audience and the brand and until that problem of broken trust is resolved until then i do agree with cena's ultimate point that developing such an era defining star is for now impossible which wouldn't be as much of a concern if many of WWE's key metrics and really virtually all of WWE's revenue streams that come directly from fans weren't exhibiting a pattern of annual decline through the last three or four years. But anyway, I'm sure in, in the year of 2020, those declines can be chalked up to coronavirus and the wider economic downturn, and the TV rights will be bigger than ever. So that's all I have for now. This has been WrestleNomics Radio. You can read my latest work at WrestleNomics.com. You can get a lot of data and information at WrestleNomics.com. Click on resources in the menu. You can follow WrestleNomics on Twitter at WrestleLomics. You can follow me on Twitter at Brandon Thurston. So until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, stay home, wash your hands, talk to you next time.